Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. The antiques podcast that will make you an antiques dealer against your will. We won't do any of that, but we will be discussing <laughs> antiques today. We will. But today the antiques we discuss will be fictional. Yeah, we'll be discussing an author's view of antiques. Because we are reading The Boardwalk Antiques Shop, a novel in three parts. Part one, Message in a Bottle. By either Julie Wright, Melanie Jacobson, or Heather B. Moore, or possibly all three of them, because no distinction is made as to which author wrote which <laughs> part of the novel. Yeah, they do not credit the author with the part they have written, which seems pretty rough to me. It is entirely possible that they were truly collaborative and all three of them had a hand in every story. That's true, but I feel like that also should be marked because, I don't know, I just, I like people to be accurately re reflecting their work. And I would be pretty impressed if they actually did that for an entire book. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, so like if you did that, like absolutely post up, brag about it. Like I gotta know how that happened. The blurb. Tangerine Street is a must-see tourist shop with a colorful mix of one-of-a-kind boutiques, unique restaurants, eclectic museums, quaint bookstores, and exclusive bed and breakfasts. The Boardwalk Antique Shop is an exclusive shop where every antique has a story, and each story possesses the gift to match true love. The customer who buys an antique also buys its story, and soon discovers that its story unites the past with the present, creating an unexpected romantic future. I don't know that they know what the word exclusive means, but... My first impression is that I already hate this place. Um, For being placed in the West Coast, they have remarkably sort of summed up the vibe of being on the Cape. And like, I already kind of walked in like irritated. Okay, because I was also getting big Cape Cod vibes and I was like, you know, crawling out of my skin to try and escape them. But yes. Okay, all right, good. I, I thought I was being judgmental, but I was curious about if one of the authors was from the East Coast because it doesn't, it, it's supposedly set in California. It does not feel like California. It really doesn't feel California in the least. It is lacking some important California like vibe. And they try because they, they bring up Mexican restaurants which we do have here, so I don't really- that doesn't really go far enough. No, but in Southern California, they're a little closer to the source than we are here in the Northeast. Yeah. It's just strange. I'm having trouble pinpointing what makes it feel like Cape Cod, but it feels so much like Cape Cod. Similar to you, I wanted to be not there anymore. My theory is it is the generic beach setting that makes it feel very Cape Cod as well as the attitude of the customer base in the book. Yeah. But yes, it is a novel in three parts, the first part being Message in a Bottle. And the blurb for Message in a Bottle is as follows. Jennifer is newest owner of the Boardwalk Antiques Shop, inherited from her aunt. Now, I know what you're thinking. Ken, you dropped an article from that sentence. No. I didn't. It reads as, Jennifer is newest owner. She is newest owner. She is newest owner. <laughs> When Jennifer arrives in Seashell Beach, her first priority is to meet with a realtor to sell the place. She laughs out loud when she discovers the realtor's name is Mr. Studley. But the more Jennifer gets to know Paul Studley, the more she finds reasons to stay and run the antique shop herself. So as you might have gleaned, this is an antiques-themed romance. Antiques-themed het romance. Which isn't a concept I hate out of the gate. I mean, you said het, which is already like... All right, that's demerits, but like, I'll bite. It is weird to me personally that of all businesses to set your straight romance, you chose antiques. 
it's very much the OkCupid setting of cannot see or be seen by straight people, but in reverse. <laughs> I feel like sometimes the straight people in antiques have cannot see or be seen by gay people on. Or rather, they have cannot see gay people because we see them. <laughs> I don't know if they always perceive us. Because... For reasons I've never been able to discover, we are a disproportionate percentage of the antiques population. It's just one of those mysteries. Because the one thing about the straights who try to pretend that there aren't gays in the industry is they don't do super well. So, like, <laughs> because it requires a lot of networking, you see. And I gotta say, out the gate, I fucking hate Jennifer. Whoa, 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 what? Already you hate our protagonist? I tried really hard not to. What did she do to you? And I guess I came close-ish by the end to not hating her, but I hate her. Okay, is your hatred of her based almost entirely on her dismissal of the antiques industry? No, that was the part of her character arc that I enjoyed. Her learning to find joy in it and understanding what attracted people to it was that caveat that I mentioned that almost made me not hate her. It was largely her reaction to a large inheritance that made me furious. <laughs> because I would love to have a successful business just land in my lap. That would be pretty dope, not gonna lie. If I may, her first reaction on page to having received an extremely successful antique store in what appears to be an extremely upscale resort community. A thriving tourist town. Is that it, quote, was stealing away her possibilities of tomorrow by leaving her stranded in a store full of yesterdays. The woman receives a big box that just says money on it. And no, in fact, no matter which way you turn the box, it says money. Like you turn that box upside down, there's money on the bottom. And she goes, my life is ruined. Because even if she doesn't want to run the antique store, which is a valid life choice, if a difficult one to understand, she can just sell the place, which is her intention when she first goes there, which is why she contacts the real estate agent, Mr. Paul Studley. And she's talking about how her other relatives were feeling extremely slighted by this because they actually liked the aunt and she did not. Which, frankly, fair. And there's a line where she's like, yeah, but you guys don't know how much this hurts me to have all this money that she gave me. All these fat stacks. She calls it a sucker punch from beyond the grave. <laughs> she is the least grateful person. Just the buildup as to why she would be rejecting this was weak. Like, extremely weak. So Jennifer inherits the antique shop from her deceased Aunt Daisy whom she did not get on with in life, but learns to love in debt as she goes through her belongings and discovers, honestly, not that much about her. That shouldn't have been apparent while she was alive, but I guess Jennifer's a bit dense. Yes, <laughs> true. She is a musician, majored in music in college, currently working in a music supply store, not really getting far with her band. Her bandmate, Eddie, she is head over heels for him and has been waiting for him to notice her since, uh, it sounds like high school. Yeah, I realize I'm just going to come off as extremely harsh, but, like, why did they make Jennifer so pathetic? Is that what straight people consider relatable? So there's an element of that's relatable. Lots and lots and lots of people have been in that situation. Not a lot of people have taken it to the extreme that our dear Jennifer seems to have, because it clarifies throughout the text that she's never dated another person, and that he might actually be the last person she ever kissed. Yeah. And, like, that's just sad. That was depressing. That she had a nice boy ask her to prom, but she only went so she could watch Eddie dance with someone else. 
and spent the entire night doing just that. Pathetic. Look, so pathetic. P- pathetic feels a bit cruel, but no, no. I'm going with pathetic because, like, I have known many people who have been in difficult situations like that, and none of them have been that laid low, that besotted, to the point of being crippled socially, like... It all felt very Taylor Swift. You wear short skirts, I wear t-shirts, you're a cheer captain, and I'm never getting out of this music store because I'm hung up on Eddie. Yeah. That's the thing is, like, Eddie is the only thing that seems to be holding her back. I don't get- I, I was not vibing. I was not vibing. They, they miscalculated what the audience was going to connect with. See, I was going to say that I found Eddie to be the most realistic part of the novel because- How many dear friends of mine have I seen throw their lives away for worthless, worthless men who don't deserve their time? Yeah, that's true, but usually those worthless men at least, like, pretend to like them back. Uh... Or, like, buy them dinner from time to time. Eddie didn't even do that. Eddie wasn't even pretending. No, but again, so many friends have I seen stuck in that particular pattern. There is a quote that Jen makes about Eddie that also made me want to throw literally everything out the window. Oh, do tell. This is her reflecting on whether or not she likes the Paul Studley man after first meeting him. She comments to herself, he seems very self-sure, and she's not sure if she likes that. And she says, quote, Sure, Eddie was also one of those conceited types, but he was a musician. An artist! Not a guy who peddled other people's land for a living. <laughs> Actually, I, I, that is the point I think at which I decided, yes, I hated Jennifer. <laughs> and listen, speaking as artists, <laughs> we would like to th- say that Jennifer does not represent our views on non-artists. Yeah. Like, what the hell, Jennifer? Here's the thing. Broad strokes, I think Paul Studley was actually the most likable character in the book. Paul was a deer. Yes. He was nice. His The struggles, however brief, he described were relatable. I don't know. He was just, he was pleasant. He was polite and courteous and respectful and like genuinely wanted to help her without putting any pressure on her. Yeah. He said some thoughtful stuff about finding different paths in life that you didn't imagine. And like, you know, like his whole talk about becoming a real estate agent, I thought was neat. It very much warmed me to him. I think he deserves better than Jennifer. <laughs> Soon after entering her aunt's antique shop, Jennifer meets with the real estate agent, Paul Studley, and a very clearly telegraphed romance begins. (laughs) There is technically a love triangle here, but it's never really up for debate whether Team Paul or Team Eddie is going to win out. (laughs) This is low stakes. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot of worries there. Not a whole lot of will they, won't they, to be honest. And that's honestly the plot is girl inherits antique store, girl leaves boy behind, girl meets newer, better boy who's like actually good to her, girl leaves bad boy for good boy. End book. It is stunningly fanfiction-like. I don't know that I agree with that. In fanfiction, she would throw Paul Studley off a bridge and run back into Eddie's arms. We know how fanfiction be do. No, no, I'm saying there are elements of this. The fanfiction element that I was particularly hung up on is the extremely disconnected scene where he, like, talks to a lady at a restaurant and he's like, get up on stage and play. And everyone loves her. They think she does great. They clap and cheer and they, like, throw fucking $5 bills at her. And, like, there's this element of everything falling together for Jennifer in this, like, extremely strange way that is so fanfic. 
Not saying it's bad, but it felt like fanfic. And is wish fulfillment that borders on the unbelievable, yes. Yeah. It was very, like, everything Jennifer did this new town, everyone gave her $10 and clapped, like... And still she was like, maybe I should go back to be with Eddie instead. That's the thing. That's the thing. Everyone loves her. She's successful. She loves the business now. That happened overnight, but, like, it was a short story, so I'm not gonna complain too much. But then she's still just like, yeah, but that stank-ass bitch Eddie who yelled at me last night, like, what about him? And it's like, girl, (laughs) doesn't feel like conflict at that point. It just starts feeling like irritation. The other thing that stuck out to me about that scene was that music seemed to be described in a way that was... I'm not going to say basic, but it didn't seem like it was written by a musician. I'm going to say basic because they mentioned the Stradivarius, and quite frankly, if you mention the Stradivarius around me, I will beat you with a low-budget violin. Whereas the descriptions of antiques I thought were pretty, um, while idealistic, true to the industry, like... They were all details an antiques dealer might try to whip up to do a sale. All right, yeah. I had a very tumultuous internal debate about whether or not that was really, like, ruining it for me. It came close. So, like, it's on thin ice. Like, you're on fucking watch. So the thing about Aunt Daisy's antique store is that every single item in it is not only a big-budget, high-ticket, one-of-a-kind find but also has an index card with its extensive provenance written out on it. Some samples, if you will, (laughs) because I have quotes. Yes. (laughs) A mirror, only a mirror, full length of swirls and flowers worked into the silver frame. The faded silvering made her reflection look like an old photo worn at the edges. And as she picks up the cardstock placard fastened to the mirror's side, the words were printed in a fancy font she didn't recognize. I was made in Britain and brought across the sea to Maryland in 1807 as a gift from Henri Steer to his youngest daughter, Rosalie. I remained in Maryland, shining Rosalie's reflection back to her for many years. As I was passed from mother to daughter and then given away for a charity auction, I found my way westward, changing hands from one merchant to the next until a gold rush took me all the way to Northern California. The rise of Hollywood brought me to Southern California, where I was owned by the Greta Garbo estate during her time in Hollywood. My favorite owner, however, was a sweet, unassuming woman named Janice Harold, who bravely fought breast cancer and had an innate kindness. If I were to dedicate a fairest of my owners, it would have been Janice. And here's the thing. I walk into that antique shop, I walk right the fuck back out. Because my immediate suspicion is that you are lying to me. Nothing has provenance like that. Not a single thing on this earth has that good provenance. I know it's important to the whimsy of the story, But I was having a really hard time getting over how she restocks when every item has to have that level of provenance. You find maybe one or two of those items in your entire career. You cannot fill a store with that shit. Yeah, that's the thing is, and it's like, it's implied that the way they get this provenance is that they're mostly shopping the dead people of their small town. And like, well, that's going to be a depleting resource now, isn't it? If I may give another example of the life-size Egyptian puppet, the card says... My name is Cleopatra. I was crafted to call attention to the Egyptian exhibit at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. I was sold to H.H. Holmes as decoration in his hotel. You don't want to know the unspeakable horrors I saw in that hotel. From there, I belonged to a variety of theaters and high schools as a stage prop until I made my way west as part of the trading production of the play Ada. My right leg broke during a move and I was left with a stagehand named Nathaniel Davenport who verified my history, fixed me up, and brought me to the Boardwalk Antique Shop 
My immediate reaction to that provenance is that Nathaniel Davenport is a hell of a liar. Yeah, Nathaniel Davenport is extremely charismatic and very good at spinning a fucking yarn. You can get away with one of those. Generally, that level of provenance comes when you clean out, for example, a warehouse that dealt in the shipping of items. And that is it. Or when a museum shuts down. I worked in the industry for 15 years, and I came across that level of detail in an items like history two times. Two times. So, like, unless she's specifically buying offload stock from a museum, this becomes very unbelievable very quickly. Also, okay, I'll buy a puppet cane from the Chicago World's Fair. I won't buy that puppet coincidentally went to H.H. Holmes's hotel. I won't buy that for many reasons. Chief among them being, I don't know that H.H. Holmes decorated his hotel with puppets. I really don't think he did. I feel like that would have come up in the hundreds of thousands of murder books dedicated to this man. Because if you don't recognize the name H.H. Holmes, if you are not as grim of a fuck as we are, H.H. Holmes was famous for supposedly running a hotel through which he funneled dead women. Supposedly, he had a bunch of single women come to stay at his hotel, and they all died, and he put them down grease chutes to a furnace in the basement. How much of this is true or false is debatable, but the book The Devil in the White City was largely based on this. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation the house was demolished before people had known the extent of what he had done. But surviving records largely describe it as a fucking dump because he was using it as, like, basically body laundering. It wasn't like, oh, the nicest the nicest hotel you could find in Chicago. He decorated it with a bunch of goddamned puppets. No, it was the cheapest hotel you could find near to the World's Fair. Yeah, because he was specifically targeting women people wouldn't miss. He wasn't looking for repeat customers. He only had to get you in the door once. So yeah, all right, like, so no, sorry, Jennifer's aunt. It also boggles my mind that the next paragraph is, Jen wondered what kind of unspeakable horrors could have happened in a 19th century hotel. That had been an era where women still wore dresses all day long, which Jen supposed was horrific enough. Alright, this does lead nicely into my extreme irritation with Jen not being like other girls. She's not like other girls enough to not want to wear a dress, but she's not not like other girls enough to know who H.H. Holmes is. That started to really rankle at me because it was an opportunity to characterize Jen, and quite frankly, we never get that. The extent to which Jen doesn't realize how basic she is is truly mind-boggling. The extent to which the author didn't realize how basic Jen is is boggling. <laughs> well, because, like, if I may skip ahead, there is a point where Paul is talking about, like, when he first realized Jennifer was amazing, and it was, like, during phone calls with her when she was still up north. And he was calling her at the music store to try and set up her coming to see the shop and sell it. And she would have to, like, put the phone down and tend to customers at the time because she was on the clock. Which gives us the quote. But he wanted to know her ever since she commented on the Beatles being the greatest thing to ever happen to music. What a different girl. No one said that before. What planet does Paul Studley live on that this is a minority opinion he's never heard before? What a standout of a woman, right? How does this man have ears and never yet have heard someone else declare that the Beatles were the best thing to happen to music? No, she's different, Ken. She's not like other girls. As Dee can attest, people never shut the goddamn hell up about the Beatles. <laughs> I would go so far as to say I have been castigated for my dislike of the Beatles. <laughs>
I feel like I bring this up at least once a month, but there is that comedy sketch of the home for wayward Manic Pixie Dream Girls, where a boyfriend breaks in to try and get back with his Manic Pixie Dream Girl girlfriend, and he shrieks at the orderly, she listens to the Smiths, and she yells back, they all listen to the Smiths. <laughs> and I feel like we are there again, where Paul Stelly is yelling, you don't understand, she likes the Beatles. And everyone else on the planet is shrieking back, everyone loves the Beatles, what the fuck is your problem, Paul? Where have you come from? Paul, did Poseidon dredge you up from the foam? What happened? Why are you like this? That's the fantasy angle on this romance. Well, like you said, the attitudes towards music are extremely strange, especially for it being literally all we know about the main character. The one characterization we get is that she cares about music, but at no point does she demonstrate that she cares about music. At no point does she demonstrate that she cares or even knows about music. <laughs> Her only two musical references are The Beatles and Stradivarius Violins. No, no, no. That's not... <laughs> Please do not forget her all-violin cover of an Imagine Dragons song. I forgot about the Imagine Dragons. I stopped envisioning lizards for five minutes and here we are. Or the extremely immediate strange plot point where an older antiques dealer gives her two tickets to an Imagine Dragons concert, which we do not hear about again, and I was immediately like, wait, what the fuck was that all about? Like, this music is so much her passion that she is willing to turn her back on a big box labeled money held out to her by the hottest man she's ever seen who is treating her very kindly. And yet... This is the depth of her musical knowledge. This is the absolute limits of her musical taste. Listen, she's not like other girls. She listens to the Beatles and Imagine Dragons. Which is not to say that listening to the Beatles and Imagine Dragons are not valid life choices. They both produce very good tunes, but if that's all you're working with, then she majored in music. All right, this also was like a cold, icy blast of wind from like the what the fuck mines. They clarify that before she met Paul Studley and performed at his favorite Mexican restaurant, what an honor, <laughs> that she had never played music on stage before. A requirement for graduation from almost any music school? Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, like, it's very Anastasia Steele had never used a laptop before. Like, how did you avoid playing in public with a music degree? You have to audition for music school. You know what you do for that? You get on a goddamned stage with your instrument. And you play your music. <laughs> Not to mention just the idea of someone being passionate about music, but never bothering to play it, God forbid, a day in their life, is baffling. She's constantly jamming with Eddie, but God forbid she drop by an open mic night. Did she really think that if she just played guitar for Eddie long enough, he'd be like, God, now I want to pork you? Yes, that was her entire life plan. It's so sad, right? It's like- It is absolutely true. Magic, God. It's too sad. To the point where the story becomes a bummer. And you're like, I, I wish Paul would get with someone with more substance. Just to put a final button on Jennifer's extreme unfamiliarity with music for a music major. We have the excerpt. She stayed in her apartment with her friends and practiced their music. The same music Jennifer hoped someday would be heard on the radio at regular intervals. <laughs> you know, a normal sentence that regular people say. Every Tuesday at two o'clock, you will hear a song from Jen. This is Jen on the Fives. Yeah, with her violin cover of Imagine Dragons. 
I can't get over it. I can't and I won't. But back to the antiques and their extraordinarily unlikely provenance. Yeah, that took me out of it, I gotta say. I'm torn because, like, whatever, it's magical whimsy, and on the other hand, like, it's not real. And if it were real, that's, like, the secondary problem is if it were real, every single one of those pieces would be more money than a single human being could pay. Like, those would not be shopping price items because they're all basically museum pieces. That's the thing, there are no smalls in this shop. There's nothing for the casual tourist in a tourist town to drop it and walk out with. Everything she has is a big showpiece to get someone in the door. You can't run a shop like that. You really, you can't and you shouldn't. That's not gonna work. I was interested in the fact that a young couple comes in shopping for an engagement ring, which is something I tell people all the time. If you're working on a limited budget, you can get a gorgeous ring. But the ring is more expensive at her shop than it would be at a jeweler's. That's the thing, yeah. I have the quote, the price tag made the young man swallow hard and gently suggests they try a jewelry store instead. Buddy, any vintage ring is going to be prettier and less expensive than any jewelry store ring. Like, any antique store is going to give you a better ring for a cheaper cost than Zales. Like, are you kidding? Yeah, so you're forced to confront either this person does not know antiques as well as they've pretended to, or Jennifer's new shop is so goddamned provenance that no one can afford any of it. Although even the provenance on the ring wasn't even that, like, remarkable to warrant that much of a price tag. It was just like, some turnip seller bought this for his girlfriend, isn't that sweet? And it's like, yeah, it's sweet, but it doesn't really, like, justify pricing it at over a thousand dollars. Seriously. And that's a lot of, like, what, there's a railroad lantern for $750? And I was like, what the fuck? Also that, yes. That's a rich what? And granted, I did feel a little bit foolish because that's the thing is like, you know, a verified railroad lantern, particularly one made by like a specific railroad, perhaps a railroad that no longer exists, would be in the high hundreds, not that high. Not that high. <laughs> there is also, if I may give another excerpt, a hobby horse from the gold rush period, a sewing basket that looked straight out of a Jane Austen movie set and had in fact come from that same time period, and... A burgundy petticoat that once belonged to one of the prostitutes who followed the camp of Major General Joseph Hookers during the Civil War. So we have, in the same sentence, unremarkable hobby horse, a sewing basket, which, again, I'm not a baskets man, but I don't know that you can really say that the baskets from the 1810s are much more distinct than the baskets from any other time period. True. And a burgundy petticoat. The provenance is literally impossible. Everything is best guesses, especially with those items. No 1860s sex worker is carefully preserving her petticoats for the next generation, okay? That thing is getting patched up, torn down, sized down, down, down for every successive member of her family, and then finally being ripped into rags so it can be useful in its final days. Like, that is not a surviving garment. The surviving garments that we have are largely that situation I mentioned before, highly specific, possibly like warehouses that we're dealing in the shipment of stuff from like family to family. And you know how very few of those exist? Extremely few. And you know where they are? They're in fucking museums. Because that kind of provenance is extremely hard to come by or verify. Like, is she carbon dating these things? How rich is she? Carbon dating wouldn't tell you it belonged to a sex worker from the Civil War. Yeah, that's not in the carbon. That would only get you the 1860s. That wouldn't tell you the who. <laughs> it's always like this dramatic, like, fanfiction bullshit. Like, they use the petticoat to, to, to wrap her, her journals. Like, no. Like Ken said, it got stuffed into a pantyhose doll as rags. It was, it was used to clean the bathroom. Like, chill. 
And where do you where do you constantly have the money to be acquiring these extremely large, showy provenanced pieces? Did you also boggle at the typewriter? Because I boggled at the typewriter. The typewriter was literally the most insane moment I felt like I was having a fever dream. Jennifer told about how the Royal Standard Typewriter, like the card indicated, had once belonged to David McCullough, the author behind 1776. Again, not unreasonable. But more than a famous person having used it to write famous books, this particular typewriter had been found by a young father digging through the trash bin to try and find anything of value that he might sell to support and feed his family. Then how does he know it belonged to this famous author beforehand if he found it in a trash bin? He found the machine in the dump behind their house and took it inside to clean it up and sell it, but once his little daughter saw it all fixed up and looked at it with such desire, he couldn't bear to part her from it. Her name was, and I honestly expected to read the words Albert Einstein, but <laughs> her name was Desi Irene Jones. She didn't grow up to write the great American novel, but she wrote mysteries for good housekeeping and really found that expressing herself through writing gave her happiness. She upgraded to a more modern machine when she was older and donated her typewriter to a second-hand store. I can guarantee you, Goodwill is not looking through the provenance of items found in its donation bin. Yeah, Goodwill wasn't like, Ah, sweet Janice! She wrote mysteries for good- Like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> also, you have any idea how many times in my life someone's tried to sell me Truman Capote's typewriter? Listen, the man was buried in a vault of a hundred typewriters. Yeah, if I believe every single dealer that told me that, I would have to accept that Truman Capote had walls lined with typewriters. Truman Capote typed every book by one letter at a time on a different typewriter. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And he needed all of those typewriters. An antiques dealer told me so. She said that's how she has five. The provenance for that typewriter breaks down twice in the telling of it. Twice over would the provenance have been lost if it was found in a trash bin or found at Savers, you know? That's the thing is, who's telling her this? And it leads to my next question. Is she a pathological liar? It's the only explanation. It's the only way any of this makes sense. I feel like it would have even, like, if you leaned in a little bit and the whole, like, oh, it's a magical place where the past and the present realign. Jen's aunt left her the place because she also has the fucking sight. And if she touches the items, she sees, like, flashes of their past. And then I would have been like, all right, cool. Some made-up horse shit that makes this all fine. Like, Yeah, but even that provenance would be very difficult to prove to anyone else. That's true, but <laughs> it would make the reader less irritated. <laughs> I don't know that other readers are irritated by this. I think readers are mostly charmed by this. Because overall, I would say it is a charming story. To be fair, I think in a resort town, high-end antique store, you could very easily sell that kind of lie to a customer. I mean, you know, they're rich, but they ain't bright. So, like, the descriptions of the antiques, and I, I really liked, actually, the description of the antique dealers having, like, a friendly rivalry that felt very correct. That felt very true to the industry, yeah. Which made me wonder how they got everything else so goddamn wrong. <laughs> how did you feel about their description of estate sales? Strangely grim. So an antique stealer who knew Jennifer's aunt comes into the shop, not yet knowing she's dead, but discovers from Jennifer that she is dead, and then they have a talk about what happens to people's stuff when they die, i.e. estate sales. And Jennifer felt a little dubious of his explanation. So you buy things cheap from dead people and their mourning kids so you can sell it for a profit? To her surprise, Henry chuckled. Wow, that makes us sound like sharks when you put it that way. No, it isn't like that. I mean, it sort of is, but not in a bad way. We buy things from estates where the children or heirs don't want to deal with the hassle of researching the value on individual items. 
Sometimes we handle the liquidations as well if they don't want to hold a public estate sale. Some people just want to collect their share and move on with their own lives, especially those who are not so grieving. Your aunt and I understand the value of the items left behind and facilitate the transactions that allow the people who desperately desire these items to obtain them. We connect people with the past. I don't know... Okay. I would say the words facilitate the transactions in everyday conversation, but that's because I'm a wretched goblin who sits inside reading books all day and doesn't ever talk to actual humans. Uh, So you're just talking about how fucking strange the syntax is here? I'm talking about a lot of things, but that is what stuck out to me when I tried to read it out loud with my human mouth. Yeah, all of the characters talk like they all have the sources right next to them. At some point she says to Eddie, I think under his tutelage I could be really great at running my aunt's shop. And I'm like, no human in history has spoken like that. Like, please stop. She's in her 20s. No musician has ever hoped that their music would someday be heard on the radio at regular intervals. (laughs) Played at regular intervals. I'm not even sure they still want to be on the radio. Overall, I thought that that was an interestingly nuanced take on the act of an estate sale. Yeah. It is pretty clear that they had some point of reference for all of the antique business stuff. I think they got too carried away in making it fantastical and, like, I guess they didn't want to deal with the mundanity of having smalls in a shop. But you can deal with that in a sentence. All you have to do is say most of her sales consisted of small, low-ticket items. And then you can go into detail on the bigger, more interesting pieces. Yeah. Or, like, well, I don't know. Maybe when she's getting started in the antiques industry, she can suddenly discover the beauty of just the small differences in the smalls that make them important and special in their own way. I just, who the hell goes to the beach with their black Amex card, you know? Like, how is the shop still in business? That's a lot of people, Ken. Do they not lose them to the sharks? I don't know how they they keep them, but, uh, you know, some of the high-end antique stores I know of are in P-Town, so... Well, I don't think you can take P-Town as a metric for measuring anything but P-Town, honestly. I think P-Town is like the platonic ideal of a crazy resort town. Like, it's amazing. I don't even know where they're putting the card when they're shopping in P-Town because half of them aren't wearing pants. (laughs) And they still manage to spend that much money, so... However, if this shop were set in P-Town, I don't think she could avoid... And that's not a shitty dig either, by the way. They have nude beaches in P-Town. They do. That's just the thing. But um, it would be hard to avoid noticing gay people exist in P-Town. It would be hard to keep that cannot see or be seen by gay people filter up. Let's be real. In most of antique, like, boutique-heavy resort towns, you would be having a hell of a time ignoring the gay contingency. <laughs> it's like Coconut Grove, Portland. Like, we're here. We're all here. It may shock you, but lots of gays have money, audience. And for some reason, we fucking love antiques. And for some reason, we are all just fucking attached to the hip to the idea of antiques. Hey, do you know why the fuck so many gay people love antiques? Write in, antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. Why are we like this? Please tell us. (laughs) Maybe eventually, if we could get a hold of, like, an LGBTQ historian, like, expert to talk with them about that, I I would love to know their thoughts. I mean, I'm just doing an informal survey of the gay people I know in antiques, and every single individual has a completely different theory, so. Yeah. I would love to find out what the common denominator is there. I guess if I'm getting granular, ultimately I was deeply annoyed by the book's view of antiques in that it seemed to only find joy in them when they were like super bombastic like big stories big important emotional connections with the the sellers yeah 
For me, the biggest moments in antiques have always been like the small, very deeply personal individual connections between people and objects that honestly wouldn't strike anyone else quite the same way. Yeah, exactly. It's all much more like that railroad lantern that she sells to a guy whose grandfather worked for the railroad. Yeah, I liked that one despite the absolutely obscene price of the lantern itself. Because that was my experience, was just these little moments where, like, yeah, my dad told me all these stories growing up, and now I collect railroad stuff, and I don't have this one, and I love this one, and let me tell you about my collection. Like, those are the really special moments. Or learning about things from customers, I think, were some of the most special moments. And I do wish Jennifer had done that. I don't know why she has to be in this, like, position of omniscience. I don't like when people view antique sellers as... Like, the god of their stock. Well, it's because she's not dealing with antiques customers in general. She's dealing very specifically with resort tourist antiques customers. Which, in my experience, they tend to come into a shop and want you to know everything about the thing. Well, there's more of those in, a, in like, a resort boutique setting, absolutely. But there are a lot of people who really want you to know that they know. I think that their focus on what brings Jennifer joy about the business was almost cynically narrow. And I didn't like that Jennifer walked in knowing jack shit, and then by the end of the book, like I said, she's just like this queen of knowing everything. And again, everything she's learned is from the extremely extensive histories written on the index cards by her dead aunt. Yeah. Who is no longer in the business and hasn't passed down how she learned all of this. So I am worried for the future of the shop when Jennifer runs out of pre-bought stock and has to go acquire her own goods, and realizes provenance is not so easy to come by as Aunt Daisy made it seem. Yeah, they, they hinted at that. I wanted them to show it because I wanted to see how she gathers the stories. I really wanted the book to include her going on her first shopping experience to see how she would tackle the issue of nothing in her shop being without a story. I, did we mention that that was like a new rule? She didn't, Well, not newer. I think her aunt had the same one, but it was like a rule about items that she brought in. Yeah. Aunt Daisy never brought anything into the store that she didn't know the full story of, which how she managed to fill an entire store is bonkers. She must have been gone for months at a time on scouting missions. She also didn't have any workers? Like, what the fuck with that? Yeah! You need multiple people. If there is more than three customers in the store, you need multiple people on the floor just to ensure that they're not stealing everything that isn't nailed down. I was gonna say, alright, alright, this is extremely granular. Especially when everything's a high-ticket item that's immediately obviously valuable to anyone walking in the door. Yeah, you basically put the fucking, like, Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum in front of everyone and said, Everything in here is a priceless artifact. Oh, I, gee, I hope nobody steals it. There's just me behind the counter. I lost my shit that they described the key as being as antique as everything inside it, which made me so fucking happy, because good luck getting people to not break in. Do you know how easy it is to pick an antique lock? Crazy easy. That's why we developed different locks. I think they heavily implied it was a skeleton key, but Jennifer couldn't know that it was called that because she doesn't know antiques. Or anything. What kind of- okay, no offense to anyone listening, but how in the hell do you not know it's called a skeleton key? That's the only thing that kind of key is called. <laughs> it's a great question. It's called that because it looks like a little skeleton. Like, what are you- what? <laughs> how? Yeah, so I'm guessing that her aunt's neighbors developed something of like a neighborhood watch to keep the shop safe because she was too stupid to figure out how security works. I guess. I guess she didn't have thefts because she doesn't have smalls. And it would be pretty noticeable if you tried to steal Cleopatra. <laughs>
But even her small items, like the ring, were way more expensive than anything you'd find in Zales. So, like... <laughs> That's true. That prime, prime smash and grab area. Like, goddamn. Which, by the way, happened in, in this city to a bunch of shops that have nothing of that caliber. So, like, good luck, Jennifer. I have yet to hear about an antique store that hasn't dealt with a smash and grab at least once. It happens! You know why? Because we put a bunch of old things in boxes and label them with big numbers. Yeah, and we say, ooh, big money! It gives people ideas. I worry that part of the author's rationale for why she doesn't have to worry about security is because, oh, but this is a town where everyone's rich and everyone has a job, and it's just like, do you know what the most common profile of a kleptomaniac is? That? (laughs) Or even just, when I worked at the antique store, the customers who walked in with empty purses and walked out with suspiciously clanking purses? They were not the poor people. I'm just saying. That was always so fucking weird. It was usually the wealthy, middle-aged white woman in white pants who were walking in and walking out with much more than they came in with without passing by my register, is all I'm saying. So anyway, uh, Jennifer is going to run this lucrative business into the ground, and hopefully she can tag onto Paul and he'll just financially support her music career. Which is what she wanted to do anyway. Yeah. No, I know, I don't believe her. I don't think she ever liked music. I think she thought she liked music because she wanted to fuck Eddie, and that just never came to fruition. <laughs> I, I think I think if you continued this book, you would find Jennifer not liking music very much anymore. She would be like, oh shit, yeah, that was all just a lot of projection, wasn't it? I will say, the one description of the antique store that, to me, rang the truest to the business, like, that was the most visceral, yes, this person has been in an antique store before reaction, was the extract the store still had customers 23 minutes after she should have locked the door <laughs> yes yes the the realest shit that was so real because oh my god do the resort people never want to fucking leave that was so real they will show up at five minutes to five and stay until six thirty because fuck you I was having like a panic attack because it was so real. So real. And then and this that like you want to tell them to go, but they're buying stuff, so you can't. You can't tell them to go because your boss won't let you, but you also can't stay because your boss doesn't want you to be punched in past 5 p.m. Riddle me that, Batman. That's why they they trick you into caring about the business as much as you as they do, because then you just you punch out and continue to help because you love the business. Oh no, I don't punch out. Not proud of it, but <laughs> I did. You are paying me overtime. If I work overtime. That's the law. Fair. My hands are tied. <laughs> Take it up with Johnny Law. That is how you should approach it. Don't do it like I did it. <laughs> Don't let love blind you <laughs> into learning how to play saxophone. Wait, what? There's a whole line about how Jennifer only learned to play saxophone because, like, Eddie said he'd kiss a saxophone player. Oh my god, you're right. Which is, like, one of the saddest in, in, a, in a very depressing... Christ, Jennifer, love yourself. I mean, she does by the end of the book, but god damn. I was stunned at how much Paul carries the chemistry. <laughs> he has to be literally perfect to get her to look at him for five seconds without wishing she was with Eddie. Yeah. And even then it takes an entire, like a whole date <laughs> for her to be like, oh, I don't wish I was with Eddie anymore. Poor Paul. And like, the thing is like, Paul gets character development that they just didn't let Jennifer have. She gets development. She learns to love the box with money written on it. Well, that, and that must've been very hard for her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like, I liked a lot of the moments that Paul had made him really endearing. 
like he had that cute conversation with his secretary that you know established that he was like a cool guy to work for and easy to make friendships with you know he like tells jennifer to stop being a fucking idiot about her brother and just like his favorite aunt died and you're like wondering why he's like sad like are you stupid yes um paul she is stupid because <laughs> she didn't need to be told that that was was going on so cool you know, he has that moment where he's, like, nerding out about, like, the Star Wars. She's got the original Yoda. She has one of the original Yoda puppets from Star Wars, yes. Which irritated me very much because, like, we know the whereabouts of one of the only surviving ones and it's not there, so. <laughs> and also, granted, Star Wars is a big property, but movie props are very difficult to get a fair price for. Yeah. It is very difficult to get a customer who is interested enough and wealthy enough to pay what they're worth. Yeah, and tech savvy because they always need fixing. Yeah. I have yet to see a single movie prop that didn't require some kind of highly specialized repair. Well, no, because you have the Book of the Dead from Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. Which, being a book doesn't require fixing, but... Yeah. You got it for a song specifically because even though it's a movie every goth knows, no one's going to give a fair price for a movie prop. (laughs) Exactly. I've still never seen that movie. I feel like every goth hearing that I have that prop and I'm just like, I've never watched it is going to fucking like break into my house at night and kill me. But are you outraged that D has this book? <laughs> Email us podcast at gmail.com. Suck it up. I have a steel door, idiot. <laughs> I guess I could sell it. But you'd never get a fair price for it. Well, that's the problem. You'd never get what it's worth. It's just strange to me that like Paul cares more about the business than Jennifer does. He does. I get the impression he's going to be running it and leaving the real estate to his sister. Which, like, that's that's pretty fun for him. Oh, man. I have, before we wrap up, I have just a few more quotes that struck me as odd. Not antiques related, just weird. (laughs) She sketched a quick glance around. Nope. Is that a phrase you have ever heard or employed in your entire life? Nope. Bad words. Do you often sketch glances? I don't try. I try not to in my day to day. Glance is already a verb. Just say she glanced around. Yeah, that there's a lot of that going. Like you said, with like the weird stilted dialogue, there's a lot of that. There's also her first day in the shop. She accidentally opens it for business and keeps selling well past closing at 6 p.m. And then Paul shows up and she says, is it okay if I finish this while you get started on taking pictures? At dusk? Yeah, my favorite time. You know, the best lighting is when uh, the sun's gone down. The whole shop is going to look like a murder scene when he puts those photos up online. Like, hey, hey, to be fair, average antiques enjoyer, that would make me more excited to buy the property. The shop is going to look like it was bathed in blood if you take photos of it at 6 p.m. What are you doing? Morning light. Clear blue morning light. But Ken, this is, this is a good real estate agent. Oh, boy. Speaking of not like other girls, when he'd asked her what she wanted, she hadn't ordered the plain pepperoni or vegetarian that was typical of so many of his dates. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, that's fucking, he's he's just like, this is the bitch for me because she ate a big nasty pizza. Like, <laughs> I love it. The amount of not other girling is, it starts to border on Ebony Darkness Raven Dementia Way. And speaking of... Paul overhearing her working in the music shop when he calls her to discuss real estate business. 
She'd made a side joke about a broken G-string being tough for any young man to handle, making the mom laugh and the kid ask why everyone was laughing. What a card. She's making a G-string joke in front of a child? Yeah. And this is one of the things that makes Paul like her? Yeah, I like her inappropriate sense of humor. I like her wildly inappropriate and unprofessional behavior in the workplace in front of children. What? Well, she was call- She was also calling Paul during her working hours, which I thought was like, I would have fired her um, oh, if that had happened more than once. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, if you have to absolutely have to get a hold of him this time, but like if you could like perhaps like just establish like a better hour to be calling him at. But that she just doesn't. She just like is on the line with him while doing her job all day. And it's like, all right, Jennifer, I need you to take your job more seriously. Especially since she's getting paid more than any other minimum wage worker. Yeah, seriously. And then when on one of her many calls to Eddie, when he's like, why won't you come back to Pacific Northwest? And she's like, why won't you date me? <laughs> um, she says, I thought you had no song without me. And then a paragraph goes by. And then the prose says, he laughed at her comment regarding him having no song without her. <laughs> like, yeah, dog. That was maybe 20 words ago. I remember. Oh, thanks for letting me know. I wasn't sure what he was laughing at. I'm not that much of a goldfish. No, I am. I'm I'm, he, I'm dumb as hell. You gotta tell me what he's laughing at. You could even leave it at he laughed at her comment. We don't need regarding him having no song without her. We remember that. That just happened. No, I forgot, Ken. I was busy thinking about how incredible it was that she ate that pizza. And the final note of weirdness, for me at least, I don't know if this struck you as weird, but um, he approached her, maybe to shake her hand or something professional like that, but with the sale being so huge and her excitement over pairing together the couple with the ring, she forgot herself and wrapped her arms around his neck and squeezed tightly. She tried to kill him. Okay, because my immediate thought was, why is she strangling him? <laughs> yeah, it was a weird way. Did she just fly into a murder frenzy whenever she gets too happy like <laughs> that's why she's trying to mask her knowledge of h.h H. holmes upon reflection i believe the author meant to say she hugged him or she embraced him but you see we have verbs that mean that specifically so there isn't this confusion about wrapping your arms around someone's throat and squeezing until the life leaves their eyes that, that's the thing is she was trying to she's trying to throw us off with that h.h H. holmes stuff right so she knew exactly who H.H. H. Holmes was, and it was her dad. Oh, God. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, yes, that was Message in a Bottle. Do you final thoughts? Not the worst romance I've read in my life. Even somehow not the blandest protagonist. I will say, despite our uh, upwards of an hour of bashing this book, it wasn't bad. <laughs> wasn't bad. It was okay. Just Okay. It was fine. It would be a perfectly cromulent beach read, you know? Yeah, yeah. A good book to take to the beach. <laughs> You're talking about using weird words. You say it's cromulent, son of a bitch. <laughs> yes, because I'm a wretched gremlin who never leaves my apartment and talks to anyone. We are the artist types. What's Jennifer's excuse? She's in a band. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, kid. You know I'm one of those conceited artist types. Well, there are two other stories in this book. I can't wait. I can't wait. I am excited to see where the antiques romance goes from here. Yeah, how many other straight people are going to <laughs> find love in this antique store, which is not really how I would have thought that would go. If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. 
let us know. Do you agree with our review of this book? Have you read this book? Do you have other books you'd recommend to us? Do you wish we'd shut the fuck up about books and get back to antiques? Write in. Uh, Good luck with at least half of that because this is our podcast. So like, (laughs) we'll listen, but we don't have to. Or you can scroll down to wherever you're listening to this and leave a review. Any review helps and gets our podcast into many other readers. If you would like to purchase antiques with not even half as much provenance, you could consider going on down to our Etsy shop. Uh, we have t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on it for if you want to rep. Or uh, a variety of vintage goods I've actually just restocked. There's a lot of clowns. There's more clowns coming. We have a melancholy musical clown music box. We have an antique Victorian human hair bracelet with locket. And we also have my new favorite, Mischievous Little Grim Porcelain Clown Doll. With a description written by D in what I'm assuming is a fever haze. Um, yes. I was at 2, 2 a.m. <laughs> because it is as follows. I have no idea where this clown came from. Usually, I adopt them to find their forever homes in exchange for their assistance with handling books and under sundry. But this guy? I just woke up and saw him. So far, this small clown has done nothing untoward or threatening, but every time I look into its stare, I am discomfited at the predatory nature I see there. I discover no kinship, no understanding, no mercy. I see only the overwhelming indifference of nature. (laughs) This clown will commit crimes. Of this, I have no doubts. Or he already has, and there's no telling what sins will follow you if you should choose to throw caution to the wind and welcome this impish creature into your home. I'm told sometimes deals with darkness yield fantastical rich states of living unimagined by those of us that remain shackled to our moral sense of safety. And I hope you find the sucker you search for in his glimmering golden eyes. This small clown has a pleasant weight, porcelain head, ragdoll body with floppy arms and legs, shiny gold-painted features, eyes that can see beyond, jaunty Chanel Rouge lips, a cheerful red button nose, soft wheat-colored faux fur hair, and comically oversized plaid overalls, green shirt, and a humorously proportioned black polka dot bow tie. What a card. I no longer dream when I sleep. (laughs) Which, great timing, because that feels like the description you would see at one of Jennifer's antiques pieces. I'll just tag that description as, yes, it's useful. And if you would like to support the podcast in other ways, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks, where we are chapter by chapter reading and reviewing Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood, a Victorian Penny Dreadful that is far more dreadful than Penny. We are on chapter 35, and the story continues apace. Twists, turns that I don't think even the author saw coming. Delightful. Join us, won't you? Thank you. Special shout out to all of our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye.